0: Morning, Bethel Church. The Word of God says that the Lord inhabits the praises of His people, which means there is something especially important about the gathering of the people of God together for His praise and at His adoration. And it is our rightful place, it is the place for which we were made, it is our first vocation, and it ought to be the prevailing posture of our hearts. Um, you know, Sunday's just a session of tuning, uh, but this should be our heart's posture all week, and I pray that it is. Now, if you want to open your Bibles to Nehemiah, we're going to be in chapters 2 and 3 today, and uh, I want to go to the Lord in prayer. I want to ask for His help, as always. Um, I know uh, my words are thin and have very little value, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. So let's ask that His Word would uh, uh, press deep down into our hearts. Our Father, we've sung some very humbling truths this morning. Uh, And I pray, God, that we have rightfully postured our heart to see you high and lifted up, to see the grace that has been poured out through Jesus Christ in our behalf, that we can be made your sons and daughters. God, that we might see now the rightful posture of our life, which is to be your followers, your disciples, and your worshipers. Lord, there's a line that we sang this morning that is... I believe true, but scandalously true, that we are the hope on earth. Hard to say, Lord, it catches me up short. And I know that hope does not reside within us, except that it is the gospel. It is the good news that Jesus pays for sins, that we can be forgiven, redeemed, and live life eternally with a holy God. That's the gospel that inhabits us. And because we have that, we are the hope on earth because you have placed your hope within us. Uh, Lord, I pray now that as we come to the scriptures, this would not be just an academic exercise, that it would be learning, but not for just learning's sake, but it would be learning for transformation, that we might be the kind of people you would have us be. So draw our hearts and our minds and all of our lives to the text that we might be shaped by what you teach us there. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Let me start with a bit of a rhetorical question. What is is the relationship in your life between prayer and action? What is the relationship between prayer and action in your own personal life? Uh, I think probably each of us has a propensity probably more towards one or the other if we were to place those things on a continuum. Uh, some, of, some of us could spend an awful long time in prayer. We would pray incessantly about something and uh, maybe never quite putting our hands to work. We could even err to that side if such a thing is possible. Uh, maybe on the other end of the spectrum, uh, some of you uh, spend all your time striving and straining and doing and working but never really looking to the Lord in prayer. Uh, you kind of have more of a, ready fire aim approach uh, to life. Uh, I think all of us has a natural inclination towards one or the other and the scriptures are very, very clear that we need both. And as we've been studying through the passages or the books of Ezra and Nehemiah now, uh, I think we've seen seen that um, prayer and action are not mutually exclusive. Uh, They go together quite complementary. In fact, they are what God would have us do. And both Ezra and Nehemiah as men are examples to us of fellows whose hearts were really shaped by prayer and whose lives subsequently were characterized by prayerful action. A both and a complementary relationship. And we're going to see that on display again this morning in Nehemiah chapter 2. Read with me uh, in verse 1. Read along with me. Don't read out loud, just read along with me. <laughs> Don't mean to mislead you there. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried, uh, my ancestors are buried lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. The king said to me, "What is it you want?" Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, "If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it." Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have a letter to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me the timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall, And for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent an army, had sent army officers and cavalry with me. We'll pause right there and chew on this for a little bit. Um, The first thing I want to draw out is something I've already said, and that's this: that Nehemiah is a man both of prayer and of action. Prayer and action. At the beginning of chapter one, which we looked at last week, we saw uh, that the news of the broken down walls had reached Nehemiah in the month of Kislev. Okay, got that? Kislev. Mental note there. Then we're told here that it was the month of Nisan that he took action and petitioned the king. So we all know how long the interval was, right? Okay, so this is kind of lost on our ears, and it's it's easy, easy to just quickly repass this, but in fact, what we need to understand here is that there's four months, at least four months, a little bit more than that, of a gap between Kislev and Nissan. And so what the author wants us to see is that for four months, Nehemiah has been praying through this issue, as we saw back in chapter one by his heart response to it. He has been seeking the mind of God and prayerfully planning his work before he takes a bold step of action. He has been doing both. Uh, it would be, you know, like hearing about the news of the broken down city in, let's say, October this month, and praying until January or even February before taking action. What's commendable in Nehemiah's life is that he doesn't have just a knee jerk reaction, he doesn't just react, um, but neither did he let the issue die or just evaporate from his heart and his mind's concern. Uh, What we are meant to see is that he took rightful action, but in the intervening time between hearing and acting, that time was saturated with prayer and planning. Uh, I think if you were to ask most people who maybe uh, have a good working knowledge of the scriptures what the book of Nehemiah is about, they would tell you it's about the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem. But in fact, I think what we see is it is really about building a heart of God through the steady discipline of prayer. That's what's in the, almost the subtext. Yeah, the wall gets our attention, but the heart of prayer that is reshaping and reforming the people is prevalent throughout the book. And so these months of godly prayer, we're going we're to see have helped Nehemiah align his heart with God's heart. It will give shape to his requests, as we talked about last week. And we'll see that prayer is not just something that he does once and then leaves behind. But he continually does his work with prayer as his ongoing guide. So there's a few things that I think are worth mentioning, first of all, to kind of help frame our understanding of the bold request that Nehemiah actually makes here. So we'll understand these events. First of all, it was a great risk for him to come and address the king in such a way. Uh, It's a little bit hard to see in this chapter all by itself, because it's not explicitly uh, referenced here. But the king's response to the report of the broken down walls in Jerusalem uh, appears to be, at least in this chapter, as really a response of no action, right? Nothing is really done. It's just reported. We're told that Nehemiah is upset, but we don't really hear the king making any decision. So we're kind of, if we're just reading this chapter alone, we're kind of left to assume that it was a decision of no action, uh, but when we, when we look a little bit further, uh, in fact, if you remember when we studied back in, in uh, Ezra, there was a chapter, chapter four, that I told you was actually out of chronological sequence. Do you remember that? Please nod. Yes. Like yeah, All of the, all of these sermons just stay with you perfectly, right? Uh, as we were going along, I talked about there is uh, there's this thing that's not in chronological order. In chapter four, there is this reference to. Uh, halting a project, a letter that's being sent, and uh, stopping them by force and all of that. And it's sort of out of chronological order, but it's in a thematic order. Uh, What is being addressed is general opposition. And so as Ezra, the author, is addressing the kinds of opposition the people of God have overcome before he lays out this one, and then he also lays out this one, and it happens to be the one that involves the king's decision on what to do uh, with the city and with their growth. And so I want to ask you to turn to Ezra chapter 4, verse 18, and we're going to see this. We're going to see King Artaxerxes' explicit decision on the report when the walls were initially coming up and the city was being rebuilt. It says this, the letter you sent us has been read and translated in my presence, I issued an uh, an order, and a search was made, and it was found that this city has a long. This city, Jerusalem, has a long history of revolt against kings, and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole Trans-Euphrates, and taxes, tribute, and duty were paid to them. Now, issue an order to these men to stop work, so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let the threat grow to the detriment of the royal interests? As soon as the copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read to Rahom and Shishim, I didn't pronounce this in advance here, Shimshai. I'm sure I'm getting that right. Shimshai, (laughs) the secretary and their associates, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. So this is the king's decision that isn't given to us explicitly here in Nehemiah, but it was given to us explicitly in the book of Ezra. Remember, these guys are contemporaries working at the same time here. And this is a time when the work was halted, and we believe that the gates were burned down and the the wall destroyed and, and left in its unfinished status. And so all of that I want to show you is this, that Nehemiah going to the king here And raising his concern and bringing it to Artaxerxes' attention here is dangerous. It's risky. Because he's not asking him simply to do something that his heart wasn't even inclined to do. He's asking him to reverse his policy. He's saying this sadness of heart, this grief that I bear, really has your fingerprints all over it. Your policy, your decision to halt the work, and to leave the walls in disrepair are the very thing that grieves my heart. Uh, Now, he's pretty diplomatic in how he does it. If you notice, he doesn't even mention the city Jerusalem. He just talks about this place where his family is, and he kind of softs his way into it, if if you will. Uh, But nevertheless, there's great risk. He's asking the king to change his mind and reverse his policy. Uh, To make matters worse, Uh, And and you you probably know this without knowing that you know it. Uh, That is that the the Medes and the Persians were a people, particularly their rulers and their leaders, that were known for their unchanging decrees. Okay, now let's go back to our series in Daniel, which of course you remember, we've already established that. Uh, Daniel and the lion's den. Remember it was King Darius who was tempted by his advisors. Hey, issue this decree that nobody can worship any other gods or pray to any other gods except to you for 30 days. And so they kind of teased him to to make this, this decree. He does, he finds out he's been duped and it's really a ploy to go against his servant Daniel. And in his heart of hearts, he would like to change it, but it's unchangeable. His decree must stand. And so reluctantly, he abides by it and he sends Daniel off to the lion's den. And of course, you know the story, the hand of the Lord was upon Daniel there. And so we see that this is not only against a king's, edict and a king's policy, the reversal that he's asking for here, but more than that, it's even against the culture for them to change such a position, and it gets worse. Now, this one is just my own conjecture here, but I think it might be valid, and that's this. We're told that when Nehemiah addresses the king, that the king is with his wife. Now, I'm just, as an observer of human nature and people everywhere, and if I might be so bold as just to say my own heart's inclination you ask me to change my mind you come and confront me about something just myself that's a little bit hard you know I'll have to I can get defensive about that but if you come and tell me that I was wrong in front of my wife and ask me to change my mind do you know what I mean that that's when a fella puffs up a little bit like hey hey," you know (laughs) take it easy so like the the cards are stacked against him here you know, we, we can just read the lines, oh yeah, he heard the news, he got sad, and he asked the king and all went well, but everything is against him. To ask for the policy change against the already made decision, against the culture of the Medes and the Persians, in the presence of his wife, Nehemiah really has poked the bear here, we might say. Uh, so this isn't just an issue of Nehemiah being a little bit shy, um, he's not, this isn't just an introvert's problem. Okay, uh, this is a real issue. And this is a man who uh, serves faithfully the king, has tried to keep his head down because if you don't, uh, your head might roll. And that's within the king's purview here. But what I want you to notice is this that before laying out his request to the king, not only has he had months of prayer going into this, but again, just before opening his mouth and making the request, he shoots out a little prayer. You see that? Uh, Some uh, commentators that I was studying this week call it an arrow prayer. So if you're an archer, I imagine you'll like that. Um, I have referenced these prayers before as breath prayers. Uh, And we see it really all through the book of Nehemiah frequently. Uh, Later on in chapter 6, we'll see one where he says, and I prayed, Lord, strengthen my hands. Strengthen my hands. Uh, moms, you say these prayers all the time. You walk into a room that's a mess. Your children are there, and it's time to respond. And you say, God, give me strength, <laughs> right? Or something like, oh, mercy. Hopefully it's a prayer not just an expletive in your own mind. <laughs> uh, I call these breath prayers because I, I, I actually think we do them all the time. I think we should do them all the time. We should spend time in prayer, shaping our heart, aligning our heart with God's heart, that we might act in a way that God would have us act, not just call him to bless what we're already inclined to do, but coming to him, right, shaping our heart, being inclined to God's heart. And then when we get on with the task, I think we need that moment to say, Lord, lead me right now, right? Strengthen my hands. God, give me patience. God, help me to listen. God, I know you are with me. Right? They're these breath prayers. They're moments of truth where we preach to ourselves the truth we know and we call upon the Lord to act in ways we know he is inclined to act. Um, So again, don't be mistaken just with Nehemiah's breath prayers that they are the sum of his life of prayer. They're certainly not. They're persistent throughout the text. But Nehemiah took time to pray and to align his heart before he acted. And he continually sought the Lord as he acted. we uh, have probably all heard the proverb uh, that says, kind of a modern day proverb, which is to plan your work and then right, work your plan. That's good. I like that. Maybe better for us with a theological spin to it would be pray for your work and then work your way with prayer. Uh, Action and prayer happening together here. Uh, I think there's a lesson for us in this. Many lessons, but one is that uh, prayer is not just a powerless tradition or some perfunctory act that we might do. Um, I think we all know that when we actually spend time in prayer and come to the throne of grace and we come to the Father and we rehearse his attributes and we remind ourselves of whose presence we're in and the nature of the one to whom we're making our appeals, it often, very often changes our hearts and shapes our requests, right? I think we know this. Um, But in some mysterious way, prayer moves the hand of God. And don't let go of that, Christian. I can't explain to you the mechanics of it. I really can't. But prayer moves the hand of God. Um, And we we see it here. Uh, We see Ezra uh, giving credit to what really happened. It's not that he was such a good guy, right? But the gracious hand of God was upon him such that the king answered his requests. Secondly here, Nehemiah's position indicates uh, something of his own character with the king. So yeah, we, we see that God's hand was at work. God's hand was upon him. He was inclined to answer Nehemiah's prayer. But Nehemiah had also postured himself, his own life, his own character, his own nature in such a way that he really did give himself the best possible chance and the best hearing with the king. As cupbearer to the king, he's one of the most trustworthy men in all of the kingdom. He sips the wine before handing it off. And we see here that his respect for the authority of the king, even a pagan king, actually is stellar. We see his humble and faithful posture on display, where three times in this this dialogue here, we see him make respectful prefaces to his requests. Phrases such as, May the king live forever. You know, we might think of that as just just a phrase that falls out of one's mouth. But in this case, remember, he's asking the king to change his policy. Which may have come off as a bit of a threat. The king may have thought, you know, hey, I've I've got an insider here who's got it against me. But instead, Nehemiah is careful to say, No, may the king live forever, truly. And he goes on and he also nuances his requests as he goes forward. If it pleases the king, if it pleases the king. So we see of Nehemiah, he's not one to disrespect authority, he's not one to come and bark at the king. He rightfully sees the king, even this pagan king, is merely an agent of God, an actor whom God will use for his will and his glory, one whose authority is derived from the Lord. And so Nehemiah, while he's prayed up, he also moves in with care and with tact and with diplomacy. Uh, We see his good character going into the situation. We also see that Nehemiah has done his homework, right? Right? When asked, what would you have me to do? Nehemiah has an answer. In other words, he didn't just come in and bluster. Oh, I said he's broken down, you know. He didn't leave it there. But he had a plan. He had a course of action. He had done his homework. He knew what needed to be done. And he presented the king with good options. He's formed a good plan, giving the king every opportunity to respond. He lays his plans out there, and he even does it open-handedly, if it pleases the king. Um, you know, as I hear this, now, let me preface my own comments here. I certainly am no king. <laughs> I'm of peasant class. Uh, I know that. And if I ever forget, my my uh, life at home reminds me, peasant class right here. But um, I I I make a lot of decisions, as you all do. You know, I have, as a leader here in the church, I have a lot of requests that come to me, a lot of decisions that come to me, and I have to weigh them out. And can I just say this, Uh, and you guys know this, but a person's tone, their posture, really makes it easy or very difficult to respond to them. It, It has such an impact. You know, if somebody comes with simply a complaint in a disrespectful tone and has no solution you know, I'll be honest, I'm human. I'm just kind of like, I've got other things to do. You know, uh, I'm not trying to be unkind, I'm just being honest. But when a person comes with a respectful tone and recognizes the, the array of decisions that need to be made and the array of opinions that are held on any one decision, and they come respectfully in, in, in such a tone and they lay something out open handedly, and they also have a plan, not just a complaint or at least a suggestion for consideration, you know what I mean? It just changes things. And you guys know this from your places of work and business and your own families. And so Nehemiah here, there's, I mean, there's just some conventional wisdom in this, but Nehemiah has not only earned the right to be heard because of his faithful character, he is respectful when he shares his concern, he carefully lays out his plan. And again, I don't want to be careful with this. Even with all of the human effort here, Nehemiah calls it right at the end. He recognizes it was the hand of the Lord upon him, the gracious hand of the Lord, the gracious hand of the Lord that affected the king's heart. How many times have we seen that in our series? Another thing I think we pick up here, there just a lot of leadership lessons, I think, in this book, and so I'm going to draw those out as, as much as possible, but uh, this one kind of got my attention, and maybe others w- wouldn't have focused on this, but for whatever reason, I did. Different leaders can employ different tactics. There's just one little verse at the end here, verse nine, at the end of the passage that I read, and it's easy just to let it go by too. But it says uh, that the king had also sent an army, had sent army officers and cavalry with me. You're like, okay, Eric, where are you going with that? Uh, you know, the old proverb goes, "There's more than one way to skin a cat," right? And I'm of the opinion that any way you skin a cat is a good way to skin a cat. But the leadership lesson here. Different leaders, different kinds of godly leaders can use different tactics. There's not like a one-size-fits-all, you know, prototype for how things get done. And this, this is really on display for us here. If you remember, in the second wave of exiles, coming out of Babylon, returning home, we've talked about this, Ezra's leading that particular troop. We're talking 50, 000, Excuse me, 5,000 people, 50,000 was the first wave, 5,000 in this second wave, and they had been enriched Right, by the king with over $180 million in today's currency with gold and silver and artifacts merely to adorn the temple that has already been built. So these 5,000 folks are returning with this kind of riches on their way back, and the king says to Ezra, you know, essentially, do you want an escort? And do you remember Ezra declined, and he said, no. The Lord will protect us. The hand of the Lord will be upon us. And so they disperse everything, which is smart, and then they go on their way. Well, here we have Nehemiah, a leader of the same people, really in the same program, returning from exile. And the option comes this time, and it says the king sent troops with them. They sent an escort. So is Nehemiah a man that is of less faith because he received the escort here? Again, it's just a little thing, but no. I, I think there's an important truth that we need, to, we need to know here, and that is quite simply this, that though our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he does work with different people in different places and different times in different ways. Our God is not a machine. He is a person who is dynamically involved in what his people are doing, and he works through Praise God, he works through our different personalities and giftings and weaknesses. God allows the people that he is asking to work to even have their fingerprints on the things that he is doing. We have four gospels. Look at the fingerprints of man on the inspiration of God there. God doesn't change, but his tactics may change to accomplish his timeless purposes. Uh, And I think there's a message here for the church, which is this, the church needs to be aware of this, needs to recognize it and accept it, or we can become, we, any church, can become simply just a rigid station of tradition, who hold on to the way things were more importantly than what God is doing. Too many churches are just simply holding on to the tradition of the familiar past and not seeking the Lord for the now or for the next, next moment. I think the church has a real knack for what I would call moralizing your preferences. Um, I could unpack this a lot, but I, I don't have the time to do it. Quite simply, we know what we prefer, and we're happy to tell everyone that's the way it ought to be. Ezra, in his in his case in his instance, refused the escort because it was a moment of bearing witness to God's care and protection for the people, and that's what he wanted the king to see. No, the hand of the Lord will protect and preserve us. For Nehemiah, consider all that he had done. His refusal or his acceptance of the request was really, I think, an act of diplomacy. I think he realized, I've already asked the king to go against his policy, to go against culture, and I did it in the presence of his wife. And he wants to send an escort. I'm going to say, okay, you know. I've, I've pushed hard enough, and I'm going to receive that. Um, I, want to, I do want to just take the chance, too, to say, Bethel, I, I get to commend you in this, because you have been a church that has accepted, and even embraced change over the years. Uh, as we have brought things to you and said, hey, we want to try this. We want to experiment with this. We think this is a time for such and such. You have been willing to say, we'll, we'll, we'll give that a shot. We'll give that a go. And then there's times we've had to come back and say, well, that was really silly, and we did that wrong. And you've been gracious to not you know, pin us down for that. And I... I just want to say, well done, guys, and I, I'm, I'm thankful for that. And as a leader, I, I really value it, and I appreciate it in you. Um, so hopefully we see something here. We see that Nehemiah is a stand-up guy, right? He's a man of prayer, but he's also a man of action. He has trustworthy character that brought him into the presence of the king in the first place. He's been wise, he's diplomatic, and we see that the hand of the Lord is upon him. But we also see that he's not afraid to get his hands dirty in the work. He gets to work. Um, Now I want to ask this question as we kind of move to the second half of the, uh, the sermon this morning, which is this. What is it that is driving Nehemiah? What is it that is behind his concern for Jerusalem and these broken down walls? Is he just an OCD type, you know, and something left unfinished is just really bothersome to him? What's his concern? What's his motivation? What's driving him uh, in this case? Certainly security is part of the issue, but I think what we see as we go on in the passage here is that there is a lack of concern for the glory of God among the people. There is a disgraceful disrepair of the city. That's the phrase that we find. A disgraceful disrepair that shows up not just on the people but it has implications for the Lord. It says something about their own half-hearted commitment to Yahweh and then it reflects poorly on God himself. I think the unfinished walls betray the unfinished reformation that God is doing with Judah here. It betrayed something unfinished in their own hearts, and it reflected poorly on the Lord. Look with me at Nehemiah 2, verse 11. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal wall and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem. By the way, I have a little diagram for you on the back of the the walls of Jerusalem and the various gates that we'll mention here, so you can track his journey if you like. Examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. You get that? The walls were in such disrepair, you couldn't even pass by. Um, so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews, the priests, or the nobles, or officials, or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. There's that word again. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Now again, when the report came in chapter 1, as we looked at this last week, they reported that they were in great trouble and disgrace. And so it's worth noting here, I think it's worth noting that, the, that these, these walls and these gates have been in disrepair for some time, years, maybe decades. Um, so the trouble or this, the security issue that they face, let's just say, is nothing new, nothing immediately new. It's been around for a little while. But it is the disgracefulness of the disrepair that is repeated again here in chapter 2. It's not necessarily the issue of security. It's, it's disgraceful. That's the word that keeps coming up. It says something about them and their hearts. And by projection, it says something about the glory of God. And that's the concern here uh, for Nehemiah. And so there's a lesson that I think we learn from this, which is that excellence and even beauty matter to the Lord. Now, I don't think we get beauty from this passage. I'm pulling that in from others. But I think they're, they're of the same cloth here, that excellence and beauty matter to the Lord. You remember when the workers were pulled together to build the tabernacle in Exodus, the folks that were called to build upon it were the ones who were skilled. If you want to do a fascinating study this week, just look up the word skilled through the, uh, the book of Exodus and see how many times it was the skilled workers in their craft that were pulled forward to do the work. The prophet Haggai in the first chapter of his book, now he is... He is a contemporary. He is one who is speaking into this, this particular scene here of the exiles return from Babylon back to Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple and the city and the walls. And he's speaking into this time, particularly the rebuilding of the temple. Haggai, his confrontation to the people from the mouth of the Lord is this. Why do you go home to your paneled houses when my house remains in a ruin? You see, they had come back into the city, their time of discipline was over, their time of rebuilding was on, and when they came in, they had unfortunately given all the attention to their own homes and not to the house of the Lord. They had gotten to the point of decor and adornment in their own homes, but the temple of God had not yet begun. And so Haggai confronts this. What I want you to just see is that throughout really the history of the people of God, there has been this concern for Exodus, in Exodus in the building of the tabernacle, for Haggai in the rebuilding of the temple, there is this concern that things be done with excellence and with beauty and with skill. And so we see here that when somebody's in this case, Israel or Judah's own homes were more adorned than the temple of God, it was disgraceful, and it reflected upon the Lord here. And so there's an application for us in this, and it's simply this, do we care for the condition of God's house as much as we care for the condition of our own house? And I think that's the principle that we see in the scriptures. If I could frame it this way, if we came to the church and we found it in disrepair, if we found it in a more disheveled condition than our own home, would that be right? And I mean to provoke you a bit here. (laughs) I'm going to go way out on a limb and say, no. How can I go home to more beauty and accoutrements than I would find in the house of the Lord? This has also been abused in history, has it not? In the time of the Reformation, prior to it, we found cathedrals built on the backs of peasants. We found people beaten down and oppressed. Uh, their finances had been squandered, and the ministry of the gospel had been distorted, and that was shameful. So we can err to you know, one side or the other. We can leave something in disrepair and dishonor the Lord, and we can build a crystal cathedral and give all attention to the building and miss the people of God, which is the church. Uh, And so I kind of want to bring this to bear on where we are right now in our season in life as a church. Um, (laughs) Not going to miss the opportunity. Um, A couple of years ago, we as a church decided that it was time to build. It was time to expand our facilities. And we began the savings work for that. You guys know we're currently about $1.1 million in cash and savings. And we need to continue to grow that. We need to continue to grow that because this room is small and uncomfortable and hot and we have no room for growth in this particular room. We're already at two services and this isn't, this isn't the only pinch point in the church, as you know. As soon as we all let out, we're going to go into that foyer and try to hear one another, have a conversation. And next service, the kids are going to show up and they're not only going to be in here, but when they go downstairs, they're pinched in every, almost every room. And I want to tell you Friends, that I I think it is critically important for us in our heart towards the Lord that we finish what God has directed us to do. That we not leave this in a state of uh, disgraceful disrepair. Now, that's not where we are. It's not disgraceful. But we need to complete what God has led us to. Um, and I know this is a, a difficult time financially in town. It's a tough time for... Our family, in some ways, as well. And uh, I would simply ask you to be faithful to do what God has called you to do, the way God has led in your heart. Um, Excellence and beauty matter to the Lord. Uh, We ourselves have a project to finish here. The next point I want to draw out here is this that I think we see that God's work deserves good planning. Uh, One of my sort of pet peeve frustrations, if I can, is that. uh, when people attribute to the Lord or to the Holy Spirit only that which happens impulsively. That drives me nuts. When, when something happens that was unexpected, we go, I was the Holy Spirit, as well it may have been. But let me just say this too. The Holy Spirit works through preparation and planning and careful decision making and discussion and the hearts of the people of God interacting to say, How is God leading us? The Holy Spirit works also through preparation. Um, when I first started preaching about nine years ago, it was my pattern to script out every word that I intended to say. And I'll be honest with you, there are times, well, I, if you were to compare the two, it's a little different what I actually say with what I have scripted. There are times when absolutely I believe the Holy Spirit inclines my heart, gives me words that I had not planned. And I believe that's of the Lord. But I also believe that he works through my planning and my study and the crafting and shaping and thinking about how to deliver something. And, uh, and we see this in Nehemiah here as well. He gets on his mount and he travels the wall and he looks around and he sees what is and he brings the report of the thing to the people. So God uses his inspection, he uses his planning The Holy Spirit is not only at work in impulsive ways. We'll leave it at that. And then lastly, I think we see this. Even God's work will encounter opposition. And I'm just going to start this now, and we're going to come back to it. But in in verses 10 and verses 19 and 20, we see a couple hints of opposition that are coming here. Uh, We see the neighbors watching these projects go, and they don't like it, and they oppose. And uh, this opposition will continue and will, in fact, increase through the book of Nehemiah, which we'll be focusing on. But what we need to hear out front is this. Just because there's opposition does not mean that God is not at work. And we need to hear that. And so the question I want to sort of close with this morning is just to kind of get you thinking about your own life here, and that's this. Is there some, in some way, is there something in your life That you have left undone that in some way brings disreputation to the Lord? Is there something you have left undone that in some way reflects badly upon the Lord? Uh, Is there a relationship that you have left unmended? Uh, An act of service that you have left unperformed? An offering that you have left ungiven. A phone call you have not made that you need to. An act of worship that you have held that's time to release. Is there some way that you have held something back and left something undone and in disrepair and in so doing have given insufficient honor to your Lord? Uh, I want to give you a couple minutes to think about that and to pray about that, that that God might lead you. And uh, I've asked Josh if he would play a song this morning, uh, a melody that you know, uh, that we would turn our eyes to Jesus. And I just want you to, to, to take this time for introspection and to ask the Lord, have I left something undone, unmended, that brings disrepute to you? And let the Lord work upon your heart.